I'm Pamela Singer. I'm the medical director of the new Cohen's Pediatric Kidney Transplant Program. And I'm Elliot Gradstein. I'm one of the transplant surgeons specializing in liver and kidney transplantation in both pediatric and adult patients here at Northwell. We created um, a two-part series presentation on pediatric kidney transplant. First, we're going to be discussing the pre-transplant phase, and then after that, the transplant and post-transplant phases. Our second presentation will cover the transplant and post-transplant phases. Kidney transplantation is considered the treatment of choice for pediatric end-stage kidney disease. Uh, children with late-stage chronic kidney disease, class 4 or 5, um, or ESRD are candidates for either transplant or dialysis. Uh, however, transplantation has significantly improved outcomes as compared to dialysis. So for children on dialysis, mortality is about 30 times that of otherwise healthy age-matched children. And the long-term survival rates for children on dialysis are only 79% at 10 years and 66% at 20 years. That's without a kidney transplant. Uh, the biggest causes of mortality for patients with end-stage renal disease are cardiovascular mortality, and that's due to chronic fluid overload, hypertension, uremia, uh, calcification, and other factors. Um, and the other big cause of mortality in patients with end-stage kidney disease is due to infection. Just important to note that kidney transplant um, is not considered fully curative and mortality rates are not as good as otherwise healthy children, however, are significantly better than those on dialysis with mortality rates of about a quarter um, as compared to children on dialysis. And in DSRD in pediatrics, the biggest contributors are what we call KCUT, the congenital anomalies of the kidney and urinary tract, um, and that includes things like posterior urethral valves and renal dysplasia. Um, and the other main contributor is glomerular disease, which includes things like FSGS, focal segmental glomerulosclerosis. Um, in addition, cystic kidney diseases like autosomal dominant and recessive polycystic kidney disease, as well as other glomerular diseases and vasculitis uh, from lupus and other autoimmune disorders um, are the primary causes of ESRD in pediatrics. Other rare diseases like HUS, oxalosis, and cystinosis are also big contributors, as well as retransplants. Uh, diabetes and tumors make up small percentages as compared to an adult where diabetes is a very large contributor to ESRD. Not surprisingly, if you look at the NAPRTX data from 2014 in their annual report, the cause of ESRD varies uh, based on your age. So younger children are more likely to have structural kidney disease. Um, again, that includes things like renal dysplasia, valves, and reflux nephropathy. Um, and older children, the older you get, you're more likely to have glomerular diseases or autoimmune diseases as your cause of renal failure. This slide looks at overall outcomes of kidney transplant, um, and here they've divided it up into living donor transplants versus deceased donor, which we'll get into a little bit more in a later slide, and they've also divided it up by transplant era. So the earliest era being from 1987 to 1995, um, and the latest data they have 
in this report is from 2005 to 2013. And what you can see is that transplant outcomes are very good. Overall transplant outcomes currently at three years are about 90 to 93% survival. Um, and what you could see is that previously there was a large discrepancy between living donor and deceased donor outcomes, um, which were much more apparent in older eras, but now that discrepancy has gotten much smaller and outcomes are much more similar regardless of your source of kidney donor. So when a child needs a kidney transplant, uh, there's a whole process that they need to undergo. Um, there's a kidney transplant evaluation where they meet the full set of members of the transplant team, and that includes a transplant surgeon, a nephrologist, a transplant coordinator, that's typically a nurse or nurse practitioner who helps coordinate um, all the follow-ups and um, all aspects of the pre- and post-transplant care. They have to meet with a specially trained social worker, um, a nutritionist to make sure that they're nutritionally adequate at the time of transplant, and also a financial coordinator to make sure that everything is in place with regards to insurance. And all of these um, are required by CMS as um, parts of the transplant team evaluation. In terms of who's considered eligible for a kidney transplant, so in pediatrics, there are generally few contraindications. Um, typically, the things that would prevent someone from getting a kidney transplant include active malignancy. So you generally need about two years um, after a malignancy before you can be de uh, considered a candidate for a transplant. Evidence of active autoimmune disease is a relative contraindication for transplant, as is obesity or failure to thrive. Um, again, showing the importance of the nutritionist in the transplant evaluation. Patients who have uncontrolled chronic infections are not considered to be candidates for transplant due to the need for immunosuppression. Um, anyone who's had a history of medical noncompliance, um, anyone who shows a lack of comprehension about the risks and benefits of surgery and the transplant regimen, and anyone who's had active or recent illicit drug use um, can all be considered not to be an immediate candidate for transplantation. Um, one thing to note in pediatrics is that weight less than 10 kilograms is considered a relative contraindication as well due to poor outcomes in smaller patients. Um, but typically, these patients will get listed in an inactive state while we wait for them to gain weight. Some important considerations during the transplant evaluation process for pediatric patients specifically um, is immunization. So a lot of our patients have not had a chance yet to be fully immunized according to the regular pediatric schedule. Um, and this is important because after a transplant, when the patient's immunosuppressed, they're not able to get live vaccines. So that includes MMR and varicella specifically. So those things need to be given pre-transplant on an accelerated schedule. And in general, we try to have people immunized as fully as possible prior to transplantation. It's also possible due to patients who may already be on immunosuppression for diseases such as lupus or who may have protein losses in the urine related to their kidney disease, they may not be able to mount an immune response appropriately 
to normal vaccinations, and so they may need higher doses of X or extra doses of vaccine prior to transplantation. The other important consideration for pediatric patients specifically is size. Um, as I mentioned, 10 kilograms is often considered to be a standard weight cutoff, and in order to help our patients get to that weight, we oftentimes will have to do intensive feeding regimens, which may include placement of a G-tube to allow for overnight feeding, as well as initiation of growth hormone to help them get to an acceptable transplant weight. So in general, for those of you who have a familiarity with adult renal transplantation, there are some similar aspects um, of trans post-transplant and pre-transplant care um, to adults. Specifically, many of the immunosuppressive regimens tend to be similar um, with a base of calcineurin inhibitors, steroids, uh, and anti-metabolite medications, which we'll go through soon. Complications, um, perioperative and postoperative, um, tend to be similar in terms of problems at the ureter, problems associated with bleeding, thrombosis, and problems as associated with arterial stenoses. Uh, similarly to adults, creatinine is the main biomarker that is followed for um, as a surrogate for graft function, although there is some research now on uh, novel biomarkers um, uh, like NGAL <clears throat> to follow uh, the function of a graft. And lastly, uh, rejection remains a, a, um, the Achilles heel of kidney transplantation, uh, and um, the manifestations of rejection tend to be the same in pediatrics um, as in adults. But also, clearly, there are many differences from adults. As we discussed previously, the primary kidney diseases, both in um, younger and older children, tend to be different. Um, thought must be given to immunizations, as we just discussed. Um, some of the post-transplant infections um, are different. The incidences of transplant infections that are the same may be higher or lower in children. And also, significant uh, thought needs to be given to um, the growth and development of the pediatric transplant patient, uh, which is often um, not as much of a regard for adults. So now I'm going to talk about um, pediatric kidney allocation. In December of 2014, UNOS, which is the United Network for Organ Sharing, changed the paradigm by which all kidneys in the country were allocated. And specifically, um, kidneys were allocated in different sequences based on their KDPI or their kidney donor profile index. This score ranges from 0 to 100, and it reflects um, the expected function of that particular kidney in comparison to all of the kidneys that were transplanted from the prior year. So, for instance, a kidney with a KDPI of 16% would be expected to function better or survive longer than 84% of all of the kidneys that were transplanted in the past year. KDPI is based on different donor variables, such as that donor's age, BMI, ethnicity, medical history, specifically of hypertension, diabetes, cause of death, terminal creatinine prior to the organ procurement, hepatitis C viral status, and whether the donor was a traditional brain-dead donor or a donor who died after circulatory death. So again, 
KDPI forms the basis of the current allocation system. A new score was also introduced in the last iteration of the allocation system um, called the EPTS, or Estimated Post-Transplant Survival Score. And the purpose of this score was to identify those transplant candidates who were most likely to live the longest time after renal transplantation. Components of the EPTS score are limited, making it not a very granular score. However, it uh, includes diabetic status, duration on dialysis, prior transplantation, and age of the transplant candidate. The score ranges from 0 to 100, such and is um, arranged such that a lower score indicates a longer expected survival. Now, importantly for pediatrics, EPTS scores are not calculated in, PT in pediatric patients. Um, however, once the patient turns 18 years old, it can become important. So, in general, the kidneys that have <clears throat> the lowest KDPI score are allocated to pediatrics. And even after a pediatric candidate turns 18 years old, as long as they were registered while they were a pediatric patient, they will maintain their pediatric priority. So here is a typical allocation schematic for a kidney that would go to a pediatric patient. So you can see on top that the KDPI of this particular kidney is less than 20%. It first gets offered to highly sensitized patients in the country. So these are patients who have um, lots of antibody making transplantation uh, um, a highly unlikely event for them. Typically, there are very few of these patients who may show up on a, in an allocation sequence. Again, next is zero mismatched kidneys. Um, specifically for patients who are likely to live for a long time after transplantation. So these are kidneys that we would expect to function for a very, very long time in patients who are quite healthy. So those patients um, get access to kidneys prior to pediatric patients. Um, our allocation, UNOS and uh, the allocation system in general, um, look after um, prior living donors who have made, may have developed kidney failure. So prior to pediatric patients, they would have a chance of getting a KDPI less than 20% kidney. But you can see <clears throat> fourth comes local pediatric patients. Typically in sequences one, so the highly sensitized patients, the zero mismatch patients, or the prior living donors, there would be very few um, um, patients who may fall into those categories. So typically, local pediatrics will be the first cohort of patients who show up on a match run. To give you an example, if there was a 17-year-old uh, who died of head trauma in the Bronx at Cohen's uh, Children's Hospital, our pediatric patients would show up as a local pediatrics case and would be rather high um, for that kidney. So UNOS divides the country into 11 specific regions um, to handle organ allocation. This is important for pediatrics specifically because if a kidney becomes available in the western half of Vermont, that is actually within the same region as we are at Cohen's Children's Hospital, such that our patients have a good 
chance of being offered one of those kidneys. Likewise, if a donor is in New Mexico, but a recipient is in San Francisco, they are within the same region, so the San Francisco recipient would have a chance at being offered the New Mexico kidney far before we would in Long Island. So as you can see, patients who are listed at any given center are competing with patients within their uh, at other local centers for any given kidney. So again, looking here, this is the same KDPI of 16%, for example, kidney being offered. If we have a patient here uh, at Cohen's, they would be competing for that kidney with a patient at any of the other New York City centers. To discriminate against among these potential recipients, um, recipients will receive points. And those points are determined by um, their pediatric status, their CPRA, or how sensitized they are, if they match well with the kidney, so that's HLA-DR matching, or if they were a prior living donor, which obviously in the pediatric case is extremely rare. Um, so these recipients, based on those points, are, are rank-ordered um, against each other. For patients on the kidney waiting list, one of the things which can increase their chances of getting an organ faster are if they agree to take what we call a PHS increased risk organ. So PHS is the public health service, which has come up with a list of criteria which will designate an organ as increased risk. And what that means is that that organ has a somewhat higher chance of being a carrier of an infectious disease, such as HIV or hepatitis B or C, um, and that subsequently the recipient of that kidney is at somewhat increased risk of contracting the disease from that organ. So the list of criteria which would make something categorized as increased risk include illicit IV drug use within the preceding 12 months, men who have had sex with men, um, having had sex in exchange for money or drugs, both of those within the preceding 12 months, um, anyone who has had sexual encounters with someone known to have or suspected of having HIV, Hep B, or Hep C, um, anyone who's been in prison for more than 72 hours in the past 12 months, anyone who's been diagnosed with any other STD, including chlamydia or gonorrhea in the past 12 months, um, children born to mothers who are known to have had HIV, hepatitis B, or hepatitis C, if they are um, young children, are considered to be increased risk. Um, and similarly, any child who has been breastfed within the past 12 months from a mother known to have um, these diseases within the past 12 months. All of these PHS increased risk organs will undergo testing to see if the potential donor does carry any of these diseases. So they get tested for HIV, hepatitis B, and hepatitis C. Um, and as testing for these viruses has gotten better with the use of nucleic acid testing, um, the percentage, the chance of having a false negative test for any of these diseases has decreased. So you can see, for instance, an IV drug user for every 10,000 donors, the risk of being in the window period 
which is um, when you would potentially have a false negative test result for an ELISA was 0.12% um, and is less than that now, less than 0.1% with nucleic acid testing. And similarly, um, IV drug use, the risk of having a false negative test for hepatitis C previously was 3%, and now with NAT testing is down to 0.3%. Um, so as this testing has gotten better, our concern about having false negative testing due to being in the window period has similarly decreased, and very often um, we will advise that our patients do consider these organs um, in order to get off the wait list sooner than they otherwise would. Um, if a patient receives a PHS increased risk organ, they do need to sign a separate consent for that, and there is increased post-transplant monitoring to check HIV, hepatitis B, and hepatitis C serostatus at various time points after transplantation. So the other big factor in terms of accepting a kidney for a potential recipient is whether that kidney is compatible. Obviously, our concern is that if a patient um, is not compatible with a given donor, the patient will then reject that donor's kidney, and therefore that's not considered suitable for transplantation. So the first thing that comes into play when we're talking about transplant compatibility is ABO status. Um, as you may know, blood type O is considered to be the universal donor and blood type AB is considered to be the universal recipient, which means that, for example, a recipient whose blood type is AB can get a donor from, can get a kidney from a donor of any blood type whether it's A, B, A, B, or O. In comparison, a recipient whose blood type O can only receive a kidney um, from a patient, from a donor who is also blood type O. And that has impact on how long patients wait for kidney transplants. Uh, certain blood types are thought to have, are known to have longer waiting periods, uh, specifically blood types B and O. Um, related to issues regarding ABO compatibility and organ availability. Beyond ABO incompatibility, there's also the issue of HLA compatibility. So the major histocompatibility complex proteins known as MHC, which are also called the HLA, human leukocyte antigens um, in humans, are cell surface antigenic fingerprint proteins, which are the products of genes on chromosome 6. Um, and these proteins are found on leukocyte cell surfaces and help the immune system recognize self from non-self cells. So there are two main classes of MHC molecules, class 1, which includes HLA, A, B, and C, and class 2, which includes uh, HLA, DP, DQ, and DR. And any person will inherit half of their HLA markers from their mother and half of, from their father. Um, so, for example, if somebody gets a transplant from a parent, they will at least be a three out of six um, HLA match. However, there's significant MHC variation in the human population with hundreds of possible alleles for each of these MHC genes. And so the chance of being a perfect match for anyone other than an identical twin is low. But matching is the other factor, matching on HLA is the other factor which goes into establishing 
um, an organ compatibility for a patient. So as I mentioned, there are hundreds of different alleles um, for each class of HLA. Um, however, it's important to know that we don't need to have perfectly matched or even well-matched kidneys in order to go ahead with a kidney transplant as long as the donor and recipient do not have a positive cross-match, which we'll go into in the next slide. Um, the majority of kidneys that are transplanted are not considered to be well-matched, um, which means having four or more uh, HLA matching. Um, only 13% of kidney transplants are considered well-matched. Um, however, it is true that the more well-matched a kidney is, the better the long-term graft survival and the lower the rates of rejection. However, um, we do go ahead with HLA-incompatible kidney transplantation because outcomes overall are still very good. And in particular, the long-term outcomes are better with receiving a poorly matched kidney transplant as compared to remaining on dialysis. Whereas strict HLA compatibility in terms of mismatching HLA antigens does not preclude transplantation, the presence of antibodies to a donor's HLA antigens does indeed preclude the possibility of a transplant. There are different ways that we have to detect the presence of antibody in a uh, potential recipient. On top, you can see the traditional CDC and flow cross matches. And on the bottom is uh, something called a Luminex panel, which we can use to identify specific HLA antibodies. To take you through the assess to uh, the assessment of um, of transplantability uh, for an organ. Um, we first take donor lymphocytes and mix them with complement and um, and recipient serum. After mixing those together, we can determine if the donor lymphocytes have lysed and therefore deem a positive CDC crossmatch. We can also, rather than looking for cell lysis, detect the presence of an antibody-lymphocyte reaction and label it with fluorescent conjugated anti-human globulin. This will create a fluorescent reaction that allows us to deem assess for the presence of donor-specific antibodies in that recipient. Importantly, if either of these are positive, it is a relative contraindication to transplant. Another more modern way of assessing transplantability or the presence of donor-specific antibody that would preclude transplantation is to run what we call a Luminex panel. The HLA molecules sitting on our lymphocytes and nucleated cells have all been extensively typed and recreated. These purified HLA antigens can be embedded in polystyrene microspheres. The spheres 
then can be mixed with recipient serum and again radio labeled with fluorescent conjugated anti-human globulin. This allows us to test for the presence of a specific donor-specific HLA antibody in the recipient. So, whereas the top panels can just tell us in a binary sense if there is a positive or negative cross-match with the donor, a Luminex panel allows us to assess the amount of antibody to a specific HLA protein um, and therefore determine just how likely a acute rejection of that organ is. To give an example, on top, we may do a flow, flow cross match and know that recipient Mike is incompatible with donor Jane. But in a Luminex panel, we would know that because recipient Mike has a high antibody level to a specific class 2, let's say DR52 antigen, that for that reason, he is incompatible with Jane. And it allows us to type and assess trans transplantability in a much more clear and granular manner.